0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 121 with my guest, Christian Finnegan. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90, no, not 90, an hour or two. Let's be honest, two hours about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. That's also the name you can follow me at on Twitter. And um, there's a Facebook page dedicated to, uh, to this, and there's on the website, there's a forum you can join and a variety of topics uh, that you can you can share on. Some great people to meet there. And there's a bunch of surveys you can take. And you can also see the responses that other people have filled out on the surveys. Um, so go check that out if you would. And uh, let's jump uh, into it. I, I've decided that I'm going to try doing all the surveys at the end of the show um, and see how you guys like that. Uh, I'm just going to read this. Before we get to the interview with Christian, this um, email I got from a woman who calls herself Libby, she writes, Paul, you do have issues with interviewing young women. Dude, interview a female older than, say, your age, and your age is in capital letters. Either that or just fess up to using this podcast, better or worse, to attract damaged young females. If I'm wrong, and I'm okay with being wrong, then please call me out. Love the podcast, but you shy away from admitting that you love interviewing young women. Emphasis on young. Um, I would admit that I love interviewing women. Um, I try to get younger guests uh, on the show. I'm trying to get younger men and women. And um, so uh, I would say um, part of that is right. Um and to the fess up that you're using this podcast, better or worse, to attract damaged young females um, on this 4th of July, in the words of her founding fathers, a hearty go fuck yourself. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was
1: constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career.
0: Wanting to die and...
1: To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in
0: my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute,
1: and what I became was an animal.
0: They took away my shoelaces.
1: I became chaos.
0: Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is.
1: If you go to a support group. It's like creating a family that you didn't have.
0: I mean, life is one percent ahead.
1: My body was abused.
0: judgment about that event.
1: But they couldn't touch the best parts of me.
0: But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with Christian Finnegan, who most of you know from his uh, his stand-up comedy, and uh, probably the other thing that you're you're most famous for, uh, other than... Um, uh, most famous for, yeah, I'm not sure, b- I'll take it. Other than Best Week <laughs> Ever, was playing uh, Chad, the white roommate, in uh, the Dave Chappelle show sketch mm-hmm. of Mad Real World. Yes, it's the role I was born to play. <laughs> uh. <laughs> you're so great in that, though.
1: I mean, you just... You, it's so subtle and... Well, it's not a, it wasn't a huge stretch from me in general. I mean, I think the characters from Maine, I'm from Massachusetts, you know, white suburbia as it gets. I think there were maybe four black kids in my entire school, you know, but, uh, so it was not, uh, I'd already done my sense memory work, you know, (laughs) all through life. But, uh, yeah, still to this day, you know, I know that I'm starting to gain weight again when people start recognizing me from Chappelle's show again. When I got really skinny, people stopped recognizing me. And then when I started saying, hey, you were in Chappelle's show, I was like, ah, I guess I'm getting fat again.
0: <laughs> Did you do, uh, a bunch of sketches on that show? or Just j- the one. Just the Just one. Just the one. Yeah, I mean, I really,
1: I caught a home run ball for sure. I mean, that's, I, I was fortunate in the sense that, uh. I know I was doing stand-up around New York, and Neil Brennan, you know, who was Dave's partner in the show, uh, you know, they had moved to New York to to work on the show, or at least Neil had, and I just knew Neil from doing the alt comedy shows, and he uh, just said, "Hey, you know, we're we're doing this show, and there's a part you might be right for," and so he got me an audition, and they sent me the script. I will admit, there when I read it, I was like, "Oh, when you needed a pathetic." white boy to be <laughs> emasculated you thought i know the guy <laughs> the perfect dude um but yeah I, I mean it to for something that you know was really three or four days out of my life to have had the impact that has had you know it was like i've worked on things for months and years and i'm sure you have too and it's just it's like pissing into the ether, you know, and then the universe decides when things uh, are going to happen. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, well, that I definitely knew it was going to be really good. I mean, I remember at the, the table read, uh, there was three sketches that were read. One of them was the mad real world. One of them was, uh, Clayton Bixby, uh, blind white supremacist, which is also from the first season. And there was another one of the real big seminal first season Chappelle Show sketches and they were so hilarious and i just i could not believe how funny they were but i thought oh there's no way any of this will make it to air like not a chance uh so i knew it was going to be really funny but you know does that mean that people are going to watch it or that it'll make it unvarnished and unfiltered onto the air you know so even though i knew it was going to be really good i was still kind of surprised at just how you know what a landmine on the culture of the show was you know right. and so to have any connection to that you know 20 25 years down the road i think w- when people talk about what was going on in comedy around the year 2000 you know that first 2000 2005 it's like they'll talk about south park they'll probably talk about like borat you know borat you know and they'll probably talk about Chappelle's show and that's definitely. kind of a cool thing it's you know to, to say it's like being a a costume designer on the first season of snl or
0: something you know mm-hmm. it's like i had some little connection to that cool thing so very cool now you uh you grew up in massachusetts i did and what was what was that like um we we don't really know each other except mm. for we met for about uh a half hour i was in <laughs> new york auditioning for a game show called jump the shark this would have been mm-hmm. like what 12 years ago maybe something like that yeah and you were
1: Writing, I think, it? well, there were two iterations of that pilot and one of them I wrote on and one of them I was a panelist on. Um, so I can't, I think that was the one I was writing for, um, but yeah, you you were the host. You you got
0: the gig, didn't no, you? No, no, you didn't? no, no. That was a dinner and a movie. I was the I was the, the well, host for. FitzSimmons got the uh, got the. Oh, game. it was that iteration. Okay, then we might have
1: we may have met one other time. I thought okay. that I had worked. You know, it's all a blur. You know how it is. It is. But I think
0: it definitely on Jump the Shark is where. So, but the point is, yes, we don't know each other terribly. Yes, yeah, so well. we met each other for a, for about a half hour, <laughs> and um, and then we corresponded via email recently, and you. Gave me some of the broad strokes of stuff that's that's happened in your life, and I was like, "Oh yeah, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta, we got record." So, where would be a good place to uh, to start? Well, I
1: don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess I should probably start with a bit of a, a caveat, or I never talk about any of my family stuff on stage, like ever. And it's not that I am necessarily uh, necessarily is that a word? I don't think so. Uh, necessarily uh, ashamed or anything like that. But I've just always been reticent to be the like, my mom is so wacky. You know, it, it it's it just felt tired and silly to me. And also, I don't have a sense of humor about it. Really. You know, it's not funny to me. Um, I guess the broad strokes would be that uh, both of my brothers died Uh, My younger brother died when he was 19. He had had a heart transplant uh, and had multiple surgeries through his life and was just, you know, always a sick kid. at, At what age did his health issues start? Oh, birth. You know, it was like, you know, he had open heart surgery when he was three days old, you know, he had a transposition of the major arteries. So the the ones that were going in were going out and the ones that were supposed to be going out were going in like, you know, and, and, uh, what was the age difference between you two? He was eight years younger than me. My older brother was two years older than me and my younger brother was eight years younger. And, uh, he was just, you know, always the, the sick kid. And then around, I think when he was eight is when he had his transplant and, uh, and then you know there were a few healthy years there, you know, relatively speaking, you know, where he was a reasonably normal teenager. Um, of course, the problem was is that you know, well, I'll do the broad strokes first. Okay, so that's, no, that's okay. We can, you know, um, but my little brother was a a, a good kid in a, in a bad situation, obviously, and I I wish I could say that it was all the health stuff. But a lot of it was sort of the tentacles outward from that. You know, he spent uh, 50% of his childhood in the hospital. And so he was constantly being pulled out of school and never really learned to make connections with other kids. And so therefore, when he he just didn't know how to be a part of a group, he had always been the the center of attention. And so when he wasn't the center of attention, for his health reasons, he would make himself the center of attention In bad ways, you know, just he just didn't know how to just be a kid in class, you know, Right. and uh, like how how would he make himself the center of attention, you know, being disruptive or sicking my mother on people that he imagined had a problem with him. Uh, The the main issue is my my mother, who is uh, severely mentally ill, um, they had this really symbiotic, unhealthy, symbiotic relationship, um, where she really defined herself by being his, you know, they were a unit. It was definitely like a, you know, Munchausen syndrome, you know, kind of thing. Uh, she lived in the hospital with him for a couple of years, you know, like sleeping on a recliner basically. And, you know, she, he slept in the same bed with her till he was like 10, you know, and, um she is incapable of having healthy personal relationships. You know, uh, it's hard for me to even know exactly what her diagnosis is. I mean, she spent time in hospitals at various times when I was growing up and, but one of her issues is that she doesn't think she has a problem or she now says, Oh, that's not me anymore. That's not me anymore. Um, and she, um, would kind of reinforce his lack of social interaction by if he said you know my mother is or I she'd he'd come home from school and say you know my teacher's a, you know bitch or whatever then my mother would call a lawyer and sue the school you know Oh and, my uh, God <laughs> she's that person Oh she's dude, the person I'm so <laughs> sorry that you that, that you had to go through She's the person like... who sues. Everyone and is sued by everyone. Like, there's constantly oh. lawsuits and... Uh, drama. Constant perpetual drama. Either I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to kill you and, and you know, and... Uh,
0: oh, dude, and I'm that. so sorry. Oh, that's...
1: that. I mean, thank you. But I sort of escaped the situation. I, I you know, I kind of packed my bags and left. I went to uh, midway through high school. My parents split up when I was fifth no seventh grade seventh grade and that's when things really got bad because my dad wasn't there anymore and my dad's no saint my dad has his own problems uh that he struggles with but that's when things really kind of went off the rails and you know i was definitely one of those kids who was falling through the cracks you know i i had never drank or did drugs growing up but i was constantly pulled out of class and accused of being on drugs because i would just fall asleep in the middle of class all the time because I just didn't sleep at night. And I had like an ulcer condition and and stuff like that. And so my dad, thankfully, right around the time where things were really bad, my dad owned a business and it was doing really well at that point. And he was able to get me out of there. And I went to a performing arts high school that I could live at my junior and senior year. And that kind of got me out of that situation. But I really left my older brother holding the bag, you know, which made me feel bad because he graduated college and had to move back in with my mother and, you know, carry that cross while I kind of went to NYU and, you know, and then So it was was him and his sick little brother and your mentally ill mom. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, my John, my older brother, you know, he, he had one foot in that world himself, honestly. He was the guy, he liked that sort of idea that you know, we all grew up Catholic, you know, so it's that feeling of this is my burden, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, this is my cross to bear. And he would constantly tell me, I think mom's getting better Chris. Like, I think he's really, you know, I think, yeah, you know, I don't think you give her enough credit. I think she's really turning around this time. And, and I just, even then I was like, dude, you're, you're, a, you're a fool, you know? And so I kind of left him holding the bag a little bit. And, uh, that my older brother and I never really had, uh, a terribly close relationship. I really tried to write off everyone. Like I didn't, I've never really felt like a family connection to anybody. I no real interest in the idea of like, Oh, family means something. I've never really understood that my dad and I get along primarily just because I like him. You know, uh, I've made a rational judgment that he is someone who I care about and has very little to do with the fact that I was a, zygote within him at some mm-hmm. point you know um, so anyway years later uh, then my my older brother just passed away had a massive heart attack and died when he was 37 and how long ago was that it would have been 2008 and that was just completely out of the blue were they
0: your only two brothers the, yeah, yeah they were
1: your only two siblings yeah 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 um, I do have a stepbrother and a stepsister uh, and I am lucky in the sense that my stepbrother was a friend of mine. Uh, my dad met his mother and then they got married. And oh, that's so, cool. So that was, that was a very lucky How old were situation. you when that happened? Uh, they started dating in my the end of my sophomore year of high school. And then they got married, I think, my senior year of high school. Um, and so that's nice. Just that, you know, you have this, you know, you're, who then became my best friend, you know, your lives go different directions and you always think like, oh, I'm not going to be able to keep up with this person.
0: Well, you can, when you see them on Thanksgiving and Christmas, yeah. you know, well, is it, is, is it fair to say then that you felt pretty alone as a kid and like your needs just weren't going to be met and I'm, I'm my, I'm on my own here. I better.
1: That is basically the conclusion that I have been brought to by my therapist. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dude, I'm so glad you're in therapy. It's only been about six months. Really? Yeah, yeah. I I never really... um, It's funny, you know, this thing, this stuff, it comes to you at a certain point in your life, you know, and I've had a really difficult time since my older brother died. And some of it is guilt about my lack of relationship with him. And some of it is guilt about my lack of relationship with my little brother, which I kept at an arm's length just because he meant my mother, you know. Uh, he was just starting to sort of become a, a good person when he died, incidentally. Like, Yeah, I remember the Christmas before he died was the first year where he was excited to give presents,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know what I mean? Which is a turning point for like a selfish yeah. kid, you know what I mean? Where it's like, he was really excited to see you open his gifts instead of what did I get, you know what right. I mean? Which is, you know, fine when you're eight. It's a little <laughs> usually by teenager years you start to come out of that it took him a little longer but um so I, I it, it's been hard for me since then uh, going from middle child to only child and uh, just this knowledge of like I'm it you know cuz I don't have kids and I don't plan to have kids and uh, how long you and your wife been together we in August we will have been married eight years and together about ten and a half okay Um. In our very first date, my wife's life is, on paper, even crazier than mine. My wife actually had a memoir that came out last year. She wrote about her insane life. Uh, what was it called? Uh, burned Down the Ground. Uh, random House put it out. And it's really good. I say random. I only mention the publisher just so I can tell people this is an actual book. It's a legitimate it's thing. It's not just a bunch of stapled pages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like uh, I used to work in publishing before I started doing comedy. I used to work at a lit agency. And I would get these Self-written books, you know, and the in you know, I'm a retired Air Force colonel, and I've written a spy novel. And they draw the cover. And they think mm-hmm. like, "I'll save you the trouble. I already know what the cover is going to look like. Let me sketch it out for yeah. you." It's like that's not helpful. But anyway, um, you know, my my wife's father is in jail for attempted murder because he cut a woman's throat and stabbed her five times. And, uh, and both couldn't her, finish
0: the deal. Could he? No,
1: no. Just, uh, I, I do a bit on my last CD about how I relate to him because we're both underachievers. But, uh, <laughs> but also her parents are deaf and she grew up in, you know, poverty in Texas and a trailer and got repossessed and all sorts of crazy stuff. But our very first date, we, I was very uncomfortable telling her about, you know, family comes up What's your, what's your, family like? And I am well aware that for a lot of women, uh, if a guy doesn't have a relationship with his mother, cause I wrote off my mother, like I didn't talk to her for a number of years. How old were you when you wrote her off? It was probably around the time I went to college or, you know, somewhere in mid college. And when I say write wrote her off, I might've talked to her once a year
0: once every six months but you're you put your walls up and you're like oh yeah this rock is dry there's nothing to be
1: and I'll admit it I was only able to do that because John was around to kind of and he seemed to enjoy it on some level that sort of masochism and so the John was the older older brother I'm sorry yeah Uh, the fact that John was there to kind of you know take the take the burden allowed me to to kind of be the the rebel so to speak Um, and was this after your little brother died this would have been still before still okay. before my my little brother passed away in like 2001 it was like like 6 weeks before September 11th good year and a <laughs> solid year <laughs> but i remember kind of feeling like when when 911 happened it was like you know i i don't think i was quite done you know not necessarily going through this, but maybe part of it was a selfish thing. Like maybe I'm not done having people feel sorry for me or something, you know, which is a gross way to think, but you know, mourning takes so many different forms and there was kind of a, Hey, treat me with kid gloves right now. I'm going through something, you know, or just like cut me a little slack right now. And all of a sudden, you know, September 11th happens, and it's just like, all right, well, that's sort of been put in perspective, slightly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, which has made me feel ashamed that I even had those feelings to begin with. You know, it's like, get over yourself, Finnegan. People die.
0: And this is something I've kind of come to to learn now. That's that's such a human response, though. Um, we have surveys on the website that, that people fill out, and one of the most common ones that people... Um, A dark thought that they have that they're ashamed of is that they want to get some serious illness or so they'll be in the hospital. So people will pay attention to them and have and feel empathy towards them. And I I think that's super common. Oh, absolutely. I used to fantasize when I was a kid about um, breaking my arm so I could have a cast, and people would, <laughs> would pay attention to it. And I remember breaking a finger playing football when I was in, I think, like, sixth or seventh grade, and being excited for two reasons. Number one, I got to finally wear, you know, like a splint, and two, I got out of football practice. And, uh, it was, <laughs> Win-win. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I remember being excited that yeah. uh, that I'd broken my finger. Oh. Well, and that's... <sighs> That's
1: one of the things I wrestle with in general, even in terms of, uh, asking to do this podcast, you know, uh, cause I solicited you, um, I, on the one side, I, I have my father who is Irish Catholic from Boston. Keep it to yourself, keep it all in the family. Like my aunt Allie was, uh severely mentally retarded and you know my brother my my dad was like one out of seven kids and uh they grew up in that sort of irish catholic family where it's like they basically locked her in the you know in the attic was he a kennedy i know (laughs) very much like that though that's you know stiff upper lip isn't quite the right term but that kind of it's all family keep it and you know it's our burden and stuff like that and you know they're not a my dad is. My dad and I have spoken about this. We're both very easily embarrassable, you know, and cringe. And for some reason, we both maybe seek out situations that make us cringe, really, and make us feel awful um, because it feels familiar, I guess, on some level. And I think that's why he married my mother. Uh, you know, who is someone who will make you cringe within twenty seconds of meeting her. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, she's she's the. Does she ever take medication? maybe for periods of time i think but you know she's one of those people where she's like i don't need that anymore the world is wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean like uh i wouldn't i don't need this medication people need to stop persecuting me ah. <laughs> you know um but my mother who is just an open vein and just a font of ridiculousness i mean it's uh, the absurdity that comes out of her mouth, I mean, she's you know lived in squalor, basically at various points uh just lived in a la Quinta inn for a year, I think, in a hotel room until they eventually you know kicked her out and moves from house to house until the landlord is trying to screw me over or whatever and you know I think they're trying to they're trying to uh they're trying to get me, you know she's always convinced that people are trying to get her, and the truth is she probably hasn't paid something and you never know. You yeah. just never know, and uh, you talk to her for forty-five seconds, and there's just these synapse leaps that she takes where it's impossible to know what's true or what's real. And she's not an idiot. That's I always am shocked when it turns out that she's not dumb. You know, she was really into Jungian psychoanalysis and stuff like that. And every once in a while, I would try to not just nod and say, yes, mom, yes, mom. And I would actually try to engage her, you know, because now I'm it. So it's like I've had to re-engage her since my older brother died in a way that, you know, has basically ruined the last five years for me, (laughs) really, when it gets right down to it. Um, But every once in a while I'll be like, all right, I'm going to try to speak to you like a real human being. And I said, hey, you should read The Tipping Point, you know, kind of thinking that'll never happen or whatever. And I was surprised when a few days later, she spoke on it with some knowledge and that she sort of understood some of the principles and ideas. It's like, of course, it's buried in nonsense. And, Mm. you know, her thing now is that she's hoping that uh, she's locked in a mortal legal struggle with her brothers and sister. Um, The only reason she has money to live on right now, I was sending her money for a long time, but her father and her her mother passed away and owned a couple of houses. And so they've been her and her siblings have been locked in mortal legal struggles for the last two years over this inheritance. And she's convinced that one of them is embezzling money. Who knows? They're all nuts. I don't have anything to do with that entire side of the family, but she is convinced that they're trying to kill her. Like literally that they're, you know, telling me where things are hidden. If she is to one day be killed, you know, and she's also, uh, an over-the-top evangelical now, you know, and her Twitter feed, which I <laughs> was unfortunate enough to discover recently. <laughs> she learned how to use Twitter. She doesn't really know how to use it, but I mean, honestly, I, I wish I even, I could pull it up for you. It's it's literally Gabriel, send your angels. the The deceitful must be punished.
0: Oh, just my real God.
1: fire and brimstone craziness, just utter craziness. And also, she says that she's hoping that her brother's hired killers don't find her until she finishes the cancer prototype she's working on. Uh, she's discovered a way to process, uh, like, for screen for certain kinds of cancer. This is a person. This is a person who does not have any degrees, by the way. She had a couple years of college. Uh, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I, I mean I, I know I'm just scattershotting right now, you know it's just a lot
0: of how you know, can how can you not with that yeah all that stuff in your history no wonder you're a stand up comedy no wonder you're good at fantasizing and imagining <laughs> who who could have stayed in that situation and not have gone to some place in their head that wasn't in that yeah. in that house well I've always
1: been. Attracted to big emotions and sort of capital R romanticism in music and in plays. You know, I was a playwriting major in college and in things like that. And I'm a big music fan now, but I've never really felt it in my actual life, which is. I think a, you know a way of compensating on some level that i don't really have close relationships with people really you know on i have friends we all have friends i have good friends and i have a wife who's you know been very helpful to me and you know been together for a long time and so it's not like i'm incapable of having relationships whatever but it's like i don't Feel those connections to to people, and I think it's just that that wall you know you just put up at a certain level. It's like you are a a dangerous person, and so I will kind of put on oven mitts and deal mm-hmm. with you as you know delicately as possible. And um, but you know my wife. When she got a whiff of my mom, you know, she had never spent any real time with my mother until my brother passed away. And let me tell you, that weekend where my older brother passed away, you would have thought that my mom had won the lottery. You know, she was, first of all, she was disassociative. Like, she wasn't fully present, but she was enjoying the attention. Like, it it had been since my younger brother died, since people had treated her with sympathy and, you know... Smiles and stuff, and she was just loving it. I mean, it was weird. How
0: how did she react when your younger brother died? Well, again, you know, on some
1: level, it was like she enjoyed it. I mean, I don't want to. I'll give her a pass on that one. I mean, she. She made him her life for a number... I mean, for his entire life, for 19 years, you know? And they had a a connection that, while I would say it's completely unhealthy, was real. And it had been such a long time coming. I mean, it was one of those things where, thank God, when it actually happened. Were you surprised he made it to 19? (sighs) at various times i mean it was one of those things where when he was born it was like we give him a week and then as we give him a year we'll give him 3 years and so they were constantly upping the ante as to what his life expectancy could be and once he had uh, the transplant you know especially then this would have been you know in the early 90s the history was still being written people are only f- now finding out what is a person with a heart transplant like after 25 years you know just there wasn't that backlog of data hmm. um and so basically his replacement heart just kinda it just gave out at a certain point, it just was done, and also my little brother, and this is not some of this is just teenage rebellion, he wouldn't take his medicine and he wouldn't do the things he was supposed to do, you know just out of anger and spite and and whatnot and and it got to the point where you know. The 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 medical people basically said we're not going to give you another heart because there's a lot of people out there that will take their medicine. Yeah, you know, and that's ugh, gross, but
0: I get it. You know, um, do you think s- part of him on on some level wanted out?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really I don't when I put myself into thinking about his life. the the misery of it is so intense to me that it's like smelling salts like get it away like i just can't you know it's not even just his health i mean not even just the constant biopsies and you know what actually killed him at the end of the day were his kidneys his kidneys you know all the you know he spent the last few months of his life on dialysis and and uh the, all the just radical medicines that were coursing through his body just, you know, uh, killed his kidneys. And, um, I mean, there were times where he said, you know, screw it, just I don't want to go through this again. Like, he was the first person to say, I don't want another transplant. Like, I don't want to do that. And then he changed his mind, and that's when they said, sorry, tough shit, basically. Um, I mean, who can say what what a kid who can say what you would actually feel in that situation? You know, uh, for someone to live with mortality, just lingering over their head every day. I mean, there was that brief period of time between when he was like 14 to 17, I mean, 13 to 17, something like that, where he was going to school and, you know, he was a, uh, active like rollerblade like skate punk kid you know and and uh, had friends and stuff and you know and probably pushed it in certain physical ways more than he should have and maybe that contributed to things. I don't know though I think it was just it just was gonna happen at a certain point I just think that the battery
0: you know he got a used battery and the used battery ran out so what do you what do you remember being a kid living in that household what do you what were your fantasies what did you leaving and and it's still and, my fantasy
1: it's still it's still all i want to do is just leave just everything everything just shave my head just leave just go away you know i mean it's it's something i i have a difficult time with now because i you know i am utterly death obsessed you know and um i th- think about suicide a lot uh, in the last few years uh but it's not as dramatic as it sounds like it's not a life is so bleak you know, you don't have to tell me yeah i understand you know, that feeling it's that, just get me out of
0: here yeah you don't necessarily want to kill yourself but you wake up and going really another day of this
1: yeah like in to what end yeah you know i mean and and part of that is my fault it's the choices i've made you know it's nobody forced me to to sort of decide to not have kids you know but i mean i think I, i started to mention but like one of the reasons my wife and i have talked about this is just our very first date, we said, oh, we could never have kids because they would just be lobster babies. You know, they'd be... <laughs> and if, and, you know, when we talk about it now, you know, I'm 40, my wife just turned 42, and we've pretty much accepted that having a natural child is probably out of the question. And But even if we were 20 and 22, it, if we were to have a child and that child would have severe physical problems, you know, because... Obviously, hearts are an issue in my family <laughs> and so, so it's
0: more than just your brother
1: well my older brother you know died of a massive heart attack oh, as well yeah. you know that was it was sudden but that's really just a massive basically heart exploded um and i have a a slight uh leaky valve you know nothing nuts but um but if I were to ever have a child that had, you know, severe men, you know, physical or mental issues, I would be so furious of myself. Like yeah. I knew this was a risk and, uh, and you know, and I'm sure part of it is just kind of like not wanting to download, like, just like, just cauterize this sick, <laughs> gross family. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just put it, no, no more, no more Finnegan's, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but as a result, you get to a point in your life. This is—I'm not saying that people have kids just to give their lives meaning, but that is a an added bonus. You know that it it gets you out of your head. When I think a lot of these sort of things hit you in your mid to late 30s, and you have something to focus on. You know, you get out of your own ass, which is where, and especially as quote unquote artistic people, comedians. Your life is spent with your head up your ass. And so to be like, all right, well, let me write something. Let me be creative. Let me think about what am I thinking about right now?
0: Ugh. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And, and you, you get tired of the introspection. Yeah. And, uh, what does yeah. this mean? And how can I communicate this to other people?
1: Yeah. and uh, I've never been terribly drawn towards doing a lot of really topical material, mostly just as a comedian, it's the shelf life is too short. You live in constant fear of someone getting there first Mm -hmm. and and all that. And I just, I don't really enjoy that kind of comedy. I'm much more interested in sort of longer narrative premises and ideas and, and stuff like that. But when you go to the well to try to write that and the well is gross and filled with, poopy water (laughs) it it does start to become a bit of a drag
0: you know Um, so that's do you feel like there is a part of you that hasn't been expressed that you want the world to know so they understand you better or do you not care
1: I would love to say I didn't care I mean I've built my life around pretending I don't care it's not true. It's it's not. I mean, I mean, but i I can't blame the world. I I, I don't think anybody's thinking that. No, I know that. But I mean, it's taken me. You know, there there comes a point where the disappointments in your life accrue faster than you can find external forces to blame them on (laughs) you know what i mean where okay for a little while you can blame circumstance and and uh tomfoolery or oh well these people are whores and they're just always out self-promoting and and yay and and etc and so forth and at a certain point you have to then the next phase is say well it's just life is a plinko board and the ball
0: just didn't bounce my way, and so know, blah blah blah. Are you saying that you feel like you're uh, professionally uh, a failure on some level? Because I look at your resume, you've got a, a Comedy Central Presents half hour. You've got a Comedy Central hour special, which very few people, get, I know, get all thrown their true. way. I know. Guest all on of this Keith Olbermann. <laughs>
1: These are all things where the minute I start to go down this sort of like "woe is me" shit, you know,
0: that all kicks in. Of course, I'm yes. not an idiot, and, and I understand that feeling that the external things, the accomplishments, can never fill that hole that needs to be filled by human connection. I I, I understand yeah. that, so I'm, I'm, I know the answer to the questions I'm asking you. I just want you. I want the listener to understand what's going on in your soul as you try to fill it. Here, here's the thing. I, I make a living doing stand-up comedy. Very few
1: people can say that. And honestly, if I knew for a fact that I would be able to maintain my current standard of living, you know, I've always just wanted to be appetizer rich. Like, I want to be at the level where if I'm out at dinner and I want to get a salad... I can just get it. I don't have to think about it. That's like the level of wealth that I would be happy with for the rest of my life. And that's basically where I'm at right now. But, you know, as you know, you can't. There's no... uh, guarantee. Yeah. There's no uh, room for advancement. You know, you have to keep that plate spinning constantly. And that's the part where I get that feeling of dread of, oh, the jets on the engine have died uh, the jets the you know the jet engines have died and yeah the plane still in the air is mm-hmm. still moving forward but it's going to start to fall at a certain point you know and and so there is that just very tactile what what are my 50s going to be like <laughs> you know fear you're how old now 39 I just 40? turned 40 okay. uh, a few months ago but more than that really i just I've wanted it's embarrassing to say this because that's the
0: best stuff. Of course. That's the stuff I love to hear. Cause it makes me feel less alone. <laughs> I want to be great. You know, it's like, I, I, I,
1: I, and I'm not, and I'm not sure that I will be. I, uh, I don't even care about being particularly successful. I just,
0: I want to be like proud of the things I do. Why are you not proud of your stand-up? I watched your stand-up, and it's great. It's okay. It's okay. It's not great. It's not... And I don't even know what that is. That's the
1: thing. It's like, I don't even know... It's I not great lo- to who? To what it should be. Or to... to, to, to I don't know, man. It's just... I've never really just wanted to be funny. I mean, stand-up comedy was kind of a... So if you're
0: not Louis C- C.K., it's it's... Fail, or, or Chris Rock, or you know the people. But the, the I'm not elite. even saying
1: the the world we would need to acknowledge. But it's just like I don't feel like I have, you know, lived up to my potential. You know, I mean that is the the sort of facile way to say it. But but more than that, I I just I never have been convinced that I would be incredibly famous or rich or anything like that, but but I always thought I would do stuff. I thought I would be productive. I thought I would uh I'm not productive. I don't work. So I don't, you know,
0: produce is the in your mind is the quote unquote failure a lack of meaning, a lack of notoriety, a lack of breadth of of body of work of, of uh how prolific you are, all of the above. What what yeah, are the I mean, ones that really that really the lack of being prolific. I mean that's you
1: know, I I I look at some of my peers, or not even peers, people younger than me, people they just do stuff. And they don't need to be given permission. They don't need to be cornered like rats into producing. They just I'm gonna go out and make a short film today. You know, this sort of unencumbered creative people that drive me
0: bonkers. <laughs> you I know, you know I know the feeling and I and I feel the same way. I think what what would it be like to have that energy and lack of um doubt? Yeah. To to, just
1: do it, just do it. Yeah, I had a few months off, I wrote a book. <laughs> you know, I it's 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 uh staggering to me. You know these people who just aren't constantly st- stuck in their navels. You know. Um, well, you know, as you're
0: as you're describing that stuff to me, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, Christian, a lot of people who've lived through a childhood like you had are in the gutter, are fucked up on dope, um, are hurting other people. He, Can't you take it in the context of what you've been through in your life and and to say, my God, I'm still standing. I mean, your your childhood... Christian, your childhood was (laughs) an emotional fucking ghetto. Yeah. And emotions are what (laughs) feeds our souls and, and helps us grow. Yeah, we need food and we need shelter, but more than anything... Kids need emotional nurturing and you had none. yeah I mean that that is certainly
1: certainly true and like my dad who I love very much as I round up to lay into him <laughs> my dad who I love very much was a prick no uh no he, he's a he's a good guy he's a sober alcoholic. yeah you know but he was definitely you know when I was a kid. He would, uh, every night he'd lock himself in the bathroom with a six-pack of tall
0: boys and just wouldn't, would just be in there all night. We're, you know? we're at the 43 mark of you recounting <laughs> tragedy after tragedy, <laughs> and we just got to your dad locking himself in the bathroom every night with a six-pack of tall boys, and you're beating yourself up because you're not more.
1: Can it, you see? It's not more, it's just... I don't know, man. It's like, if you're not going to have sort of the the deep, you know, human connection, if you're not going to have kids and kind of embrace that aspect of of human existence, then you should be making stuff. You know what I mean? Like, like, what am I doing this
0: for if I'm not going to make stuff? You know, it's like... uh, but your body and your soul and your mind are not things that you can just turn a switch on and say, go ahead, create. They need inspiration. They need things that, that drive them. And it's not just will. Yeah. It's it's I, I go months, sometimes years without feeling inspired to do anything. And then all of a sudden, inspiration will hit me and I'll be like, oh, I guess I wasn't necessarily lazy but when i'm in that period of drought Mm -hmm. i think i'm i think i'm lazy and it sounds to me like you're you're doing that same thing but you know the fact that you're in your first six months of therapy that to me might be seven at this point something around there that tells me that you're beginning a new phase in your life i don't know any person that gets into therapy that it doesn't begin a new chapter in their life anybody that's at least doing the work and going there consistently and taking advice and not holding back on what they share. I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, of course the
1: first few sessions are just basically biography, you know? I mean, the first month or two is
0: basically just explaining it airs, exposition. It airs on the biography channel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, Bill Curtis narrates it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, my therapist actually—he's a good dude, and you know—he's—he's uh, he's a New Zealander, and he's got that great sort of no BS sort of down under mentality about things. Really, as a way of just sort of laying things bare and just being like, "Just stop it," you know, and which is great for someone. And uh, but he said to me a few weeks ago, you know, because I've been main- trying to maintain a tentative relationship with my mother, just for fear of the way the world would perceive me if I didn't, you know, and it really is nothing to do. It's nothing more than that. You know, it's, it's, this is a person who literally adds zero to my life. Like, and I I say, and I don't say that lightly. I'd like to go beyond that and say, this is a person that is draining. Yeah. 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 Oh, without a doubt. I mean, my, my wife for years has been basically begging me, you know, I, my wife is a Texas girl, and she's also a girl who's been through some stuff. And so, you know, my wife will cut a, cut a bitch, mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak, um, lack of a better term. She's not someone who shies away from telling someone when they're a negative influence. You, you know what I mean? She's not going to just take stuff. And so she, and I am, to a certain degree... Um, Especially since I feel like I am the only one left. This is a woman who has lost two of her three sons. I'm the only person. It's not your fault. Of course it's not. But I've always sort of maintained a strategy of just sort of damage minimization. Like what is the, how many, how often do I need to respond to her? 31 text messages before 9 in the morning, which is what I turn on my phone once I woke up. There were 31 text messages waiting for me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. Christian. <laughs>
0: Christian. But I have always put had this your, sort of idea. Put the mic down. Put the mic down right now. I gotta give you a hug. Just put the mic down.
1: That's <laughs> very <laughs>
0: Dude. <laughs> <sighs> what about you, Christian? What about you? I know you think because you're a stand-up comedian, you're self involved and etc, cetera, etc., cetera, but there is a part of your soul that you're sacrificing because you're afraid you're going to be a bad person or perceived as a bad person. And trust me, I fucking relate to it. I just cut contact with my mom last year and it's been the greatest vacation I've ever had. Now, that being said, my brother lives a mile away from her and that helps assuage Mediate, some yeah. of some of my guilt. I don't know what I'd be doing if I were in, in your exact situation, but I guess when I'm trying to nudge you towards and I would imagine your wife and your, your therapist are doing the same thing which is to start listening to your feelings start listening to your body and well I, I finally
1: kind of I did I mean I, I I finally had to to just sever you know about a, three weeks two weeks ago three weeks ago and I actually blocked her number and, uh, you know, blocked her on Twitter.
0: It's a very 2013 thing to do. So how did <laughs> the texts come in this morning?
1: Oh, this is not this. Oh, I'm sorry. The 31 text messages weren't this morning. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. It was a morning. It was I, just, I'm the, sorry. I want my hug back. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it was not today. Yeah. Although I did somehow get a text message, of 800-word text message from her mm-hmm. yesterday. And that's the thing also is that she constantly is having phones shut off cause she doesn't pay the bills or whatever. And so then she'll get a new number and, you know, so it's, I figure that if I try to continue to block her, it will be sort of a game of whack-a-mole. But, uh, I did sort of cut the cord on that. But the thing that, that are you okay with that? (sighs) Yeah. I mean, in terms of my life, you know, Absolutely, you know there is the just the uh, the appearance of it thing. That's really. But who who is going to judge you for that? Everyone, dude. Who I mean, that's na it's, me, it's, it's naive. It's naive to say that
0: people would not judge you. Who that you care about, who is your friend, who you want to spend time with, would judge you. That's what I. Th- remind myself when I start to go, people are going to like me. And then I think none of my friends are going to dislike me for this decision because they care about me. They care how my insides feel. So fuck those people that are going to that are gonna judge you because they don't care about your insides. It's not like your mother is actively seeking to get better. Dude, she thinks it's everybody else's fault. That is the very definition of a toxic person. Yeah. My wife
1: thinks that uh, she's a friend who's a psychotherapist and they've been sort of discussing this, you know, they think that she has uh, antisocial disorder, Um, you know, and and you read the symptoms that it's like, yeah, that's a lot, you know, just destructive kind of, you know, uh, and I, I actually, in a way, I do think that that has been part of me holding myself back you know I I've entered a phase of my career and this is gonna sound weird to you and you won't buy this but where I sort of feel a bit like a cautionary tale like I I I can't tell myself that I haven't had the opportunities I have you know uh, I don't think that I won't have them again I mean that is something I have to remind myself, no matter what the sort of negative thoughts tell me. It's like the reality is, is that life is long. And, you know, I always try to think of it in terms of, um, like star Wars or top gun where the guys in the fighter pilot in the fighter plane, and he's trying to shoot the other plane and you have to get the lock on. Mm-hmm. And then when it's locked, that's when you have to fire. Well, I felt like five or six years ago I had the plane locked on and I didn't fire and now it's just, you know, I have to get it back locked on again. I mean, that's just, that's entertainment. That's just the way it happens. I mean, Louis CK is the perfect example. You know, Mark Marin, you know, these guys who f- were out, sort of out in the wilderness for a number of years, so to speak, and then managed to kind of all of a sudden just through actually doing stuff, <laughs> which is really the key doing things. Uh, so
0: I, I, but, well I, I would go one step further though and 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 say it wasn't that they did things it's that they revealed what was going on inside them in a in a way that is deep and and that people can relate to it and,
1: and ironically they relate to it because it's so specific you know uh, you, that's sometimes the trap you fall into especially when you're doing a lot of kind of road clubs and it's birthday parties and bachelorette parties of trying to be general, you know, and it's appealing to everyone. But the odd thing is, is that honestly, the more specific you get, you might not appeal to a bunch of drunk people who are just there because they got Groupon tickets or whatever, who just want to sort of be amused for 90 minutes. And there's nothing wrong with that too. I don't mean to belittle that. People go to comedy clubs for different reasons. But to have a career where people relate to you because you are putting out the purest essence of you. That is, that is what I feel like I haven't done. And, and I've had a hard time even isolating what that is. I feel like I spent a number of years trying to not be a bunch of things. And, you know, and now I'm 40 years old and I really haven't put forward a vision of what I want to be. You know, it's like I've, I've, spent half my time in the sort of, I, if there's one way to describe my existence is one foot in one foot out, you know, is that I don't want to do this because then if I go through this door, that means I'm not going to be going through this door. So I better just do nothing, <laughs> you know? And I do think that the stuff with my mother is kind of part of that is that I live in perpetual fear a few years ago when I was maybe uh, a little more known, um, among the younger people who are the most active in the media. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Part of it is just that, you know, best week ever, you know, the college kids, the ones who sort of are the tastemakers, you know, that generation is now 30 years old. You know, when I was in best week ever or whatever, they were active in college and, you know, making a lot of noise. And so therefore you start to feel like you're famous, quote unquote.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, you know, those people grow up and they now have jobs and they now have kids and things like that. They're not going out to shows constantly. And so a new generation of kids who appeal to those people who are in college. I mean, that's just the nature of nature of the world. This is babbling. <laughs> um, I had a point and now it's completely gone. Uh, feeling like, Oh, I, I know. What I was gonna yeah. say a few years ago, I just lived in perpetual fear of just some blog entry or my mother, Reaching out to some, you know, website or, you know, God forbid I get famous, you know, like, you know, you hear these stories about like Charlize Theron and her family or something like that, or Woody Harrelson and his family background. And I just live in this fear of if I ever were to become like really well known, which I never have even been close to, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, doing well at a college a couple times a month is not being famous you know Mm. but that was i just would live in fear of just this expose of like this poor woman who lost two sons and now her quote-unquote famous remaining son will just leaving her to die you know and that is just the like you know just dude
0: 30 seconds into an interview with her Every audience <laughs> member would go, oh, that's why.
1: Well, it would take maybe more than 30 seconds. I'm not sure. Well, in the, in something like this actually kind of happened about a, a two years ago. She She's constantly sort of using the church. She's basically like a, a, a frog jumping from lily pad to lily pad. And one of the things she does is she finds churches where people are charitable by nature and it's part of the thing. And she basically rings every ounce of charity and then finds a reason to hate them and then moves on to the next church. And this kid, you know, she starts adopting these quote unquote kids and she's really helping them. She I've been helping him work through some stuff. And know, basically he's just a guy who picks you up and drives you places and comes and maybe brings you groceries and things like that. But I got an email from this kid, just random kid who was like, I've been uh, seeing your mother a lot lately, and uh, I really think that you need to come down and take care of her. Because I think he was just starting to realize, like, oh, this is a crazy person. And why am I the one taking care of her? And to a certain degree, I agree with that. You know, whose responsibility is it if not mine? Doesn't mean I deserve to have it, but who's going to clean up after her
0: if not her own family, you know? but she doesn't want to help herself. She she doesn't see that there's a problem. How can you help somebody that doesn't agree with you on what the problem is? I don't know
1: that you can, but it's like... I'm not saying it's fair, but this is the, the, the argument I have in my head now, is that, yeah, I accept the fact that it doesn't make me a bad person for writing her off. It doesn't make me evil or whatever. But... This is a mess that somebody's got to clean up. And who's going to do it? If not me. Should I just allow the state to do it? Which is what my therapist basically says is yeah. like, you know, I because I always think like, what if she has a stroke? You, you know, an invalid.
0: Who's going to take care of her, you know? She needs professional help, Christian, and you're not a professional. She, no. her, the help that she needs is beyond something because she drains the the people that are around her you know she, she needs boundaries and consequences and it sounds like medication and and some willingness on her part none of those things can you on your own as a single person create enforce and and manage no
1: of course not and still not. have a life there is 0% chance that if I were to step into a caretaker role, my life would be over. Yeah. 100%. I know this to be true, that if not just physically, because I my time would be spent in the panhandle of Florida, where she lives now, taking care of this crazy person, but just I am creatively exhausted Every time, like, you know, when I have to talk to her on the phone, like, I'm just done for, like, the next 12 hours. Like, I've got nothing. I've feeling. got nothing. I've got nothing. And so I know I would just be done in on that level as well. But at the end of the day, listen, I do this to whip myself. I know I'm not going down to the panhandle floor to take care of this person. I know it's not going to happen. If it makes you feel any better, I am fully... <laughs> It's not going to happen there's no way
0: I would literally jump off a bridge first I'm talking about you being able to live with the fact that you that that's off the table
1: that's what I'm talking about i'm I'm, no- I'm trying to drill that into my head that that it's if you're not going to do something. Feeling bad about it isn't helping anybody. No, <laughs> you know? it's not. Then it's
0: the, it's the worst of both worlds. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's a Catholic way it's, to think. Yeah, you know, it is because uh, then you can beat yourself up for two reasons: for being lazy and for uh, not doing it. Yeah, it's like I'm not a am not a religious person. You know, I grew up
1: in a very religious family. Like my uncle was a priest, and we you know on that whole side of things or whatever. But I don't deny that that sort of Irish Catholic thing is just, you know, it's so ingrained in my DNA. It's the,
0: it's the touchstone of so much of the Irish Catholic culture is you stick by your family no matter what. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but that is also what contributes to uh, alcoholism and drug addiction and uh, cycles of abuse and suicide. And no, there are times when you got to pull yourself out of the fire yeah i it's it's hard to say
1: this but it's true it's hard to say this because there is the feeling that it's possible my mother might come across this and i've never really been honest with her about how ill i know she is I look forward to her suing me <laughs> <laughs> just because there's no yield there for me. It's not like she's going to snap out of it. Yeah. And so why bring it up? You know, and she's constantly saying, you know, well, if I'm, I guess you just want me dead then, or, you know, I guess if I die, are you even going to care? And I tend to just not even answer that. You know, I just say, I don't, I'm not going to respond to stuff
0: like that you know when was when was the last time she mentioned your needs and was concerned with your needs well she does I, I will say I will say that
1: that she a feign is not the right word she's enthusiastically complimentary and you know, like every time I'm I do something on TV and you know like, oh my god you're so funny and you're blah 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 it's not all negative
0: but even the positive is just a stream of crazy it's just as my mom know, is the exact is the exact same way, and I took the words away and went, okay. Let me take the lavish praise that comes, and let me look at the actions, the feeling, seen, the considering. What are my interests? What are where Where is the concern when when she's upset about some? misunderstanding or something where is the concern about what i might be feeling and experiencing and i get the feeling that your mom is only ever thinking about what she's thinking and feeling oh
1: 100 i mean she it's 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 almost hilarious how she tries to impress me when we're together like it's just a constant stream of words i mean my wife on the weekend of my brother's funeral my wife actually snapped and yelled at her which i did kind of say like come on Let's for this weekend, let's give her a pass. You know, if there's any time to maybe just let her be a crazy person this time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she'll ask a question and then you'll start to answer and she'll just start filibustering and just talking. And she's just trying to fill the space with words. Oh and, you know, God, I'm is- important. I'm smart. I'm, you know, I'm all these things. And, you know, and when she has money, she's constantly trying to throw it at me. You know, and I'm constantly telling her, I don't want any money. Take all the money you have, put it in Does savings. Does she not save anything? Is that what ah, happens? Geez. I mean, well, she has no... Sounds like she has no impulse control at all. Zilch. Zilch. I mean, it's, you know, and of course, you know, she's massively obese. You know, everybody in my family has, you know, struggled with that. I mean, not my younger brother, you know, mostly just because of his health, but um, you know, I lost 90 pounds like six years ago, and my older brother was, you know, it, impulse control when it comes to food specifically has always been, you know, an issue. And do you struggle with food? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's is that your is that your drug of choice? Kind of. No, everything. <laughs> I mean, what, well, I there... actually don't do drugs. I, I mean, I smoke weed now. Mm-hmm. I didn't start drinking until I was almost twenty-one. And I didn't smoke weed at all until two, three years ago, maybe. Um, You know, I I don't know. There's definitely i I'm reaching a point in my life where it's becoming a problem... Just in terms of my physical health and my ability to get up in the morning and and things like that. The food or the weed? Well, the the weed, drinking and weed and stuff. I don't think compared to comedians, I have a particular problem. (laughs) You know, well, most people don't work in bars at night and they're not given free drinks whenever they want to, you know. And so for someone who has three kids and works at a bank to be having his fourth drink at 1030 on a Tuesday, yeah, that might be a red flag. For me, not really. And so I think there is a different metric that you have to use. Um, But I definitely know that just in terms of my productivity, that, you know, there is a thing in me where I'll come home and I'll have done my two sets that night. And so, all right, I will start drinking now and therefore... My brain shuts off, and I don't have to sort of be in the place of why aren't I doing something right now, dude, so, I
0: get it, yeah, I totally get it <laughs> but um is the does the amount that you drink and the length that you drink ever alarm you or make you go i really shouldn't have this next drink uh i'm gonna have have it anyway, Does that happen a lot, or do you feel there
1: are times where i I definitely sense a uh a self abuse thing of like why are you doing this to yourself right now and that is very similar to the food thing and that's why i know it's not necessarily like an addiction to alcohol or to Mm -hmm. any one substance it's much more of a i remember the classic thing of me like standing in line at kennedy fried chicken the kfc knockoff on a 106th in columbus where i used to work in line for just the shittiest food you can possibly—I mean, it's the worst food in the world—and I'm three deep in a line, and I'm sitting there. Just, why do you do this to yourself? You're just a fat piece of crap. Like, why are you doing this? And I haven't even ordered it yet. Like, I could leave. You could just go. But it's like, nope. The die is cast. This is this is going to happen. And the, you know, I want I I want out of what I'm feeling right now. Yeah. Or I just want to. I just. I'm a bad person and I want to be a bad person and do the things that I want to. Do the actions that will justify the feelings
0: I already have. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. It's almost like there's a war in your head. Am I good? Am I bad? Well, if I eat this, then I'll know I'm bad. Argument over. Then I can Uh, move on and jerk off.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's a scene, you know, such a funny thing that I always think back to this movie that I don't even remember anything about. There's a movie that came out like six or seven years ago starring Al Pacino and Matthew McConaughey. I think it was called Two for the Money. And uh, it's It's, about like sports betting. mm Mm-hmm. And there's one scene where Al Pacino, they they go, he's like showing Matthew McConaughey the ropes, and he brings him to a Gamblers Anonymous meeting, basically to trawl for clients, you know, uh, you know, and hands out cards, to, you right. know, and the guy running the meeting is like get out of here, you know. Yeah. But before that, he makes a speech, and you find out that he himself is a you know recovered gambling addict, you know, is like the drug dealer that stopped doing drugs, but tells the speech and I'm paraphrasing wildly because I'm sure I'm projecting my own shit onto it. But basically the gist of it is, um, you know, I never felt, it never felt right when I won, like when I won a lot of money or something, like I always felt like, you know, this is great, but you know, I don't feel like I got away with something or, you know, it's all going to go away. But, but when I lost everything felt good, like I felt right. It felt real. And like, ah damn do I know that feeling. It's like I've had a lot of really fortunate things. Not even fortunate. I've earned certain things. I've done things that I am on paper proud of. But I've always felt like I was perpetrating a fraud. Yep. You know. But when when I eat it, when things go badly for me, when when, when uh my worst fears are confirmed when when uh I get Turned down for something, or I find out that somebody thinks I'm, you know, it just, it's weird. It's like picking a scab. It, it's like, oh, they saw the real me. Yeah. 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 And there's like this almost this relief of like, thank you. <laughs> like, finally, somebody noticed what a piece of shit I am. What a <laughs> relief this is that I have to lie
0: under this delusion anymore, you know? I remember <laughs> saying to my uh, psychiatrist when I first went to get help, I feel like. The things that I have in life and the accomplishments that I've done are on the other side of a plexiglass window and I can't feel them. Yeah. I can feel all the bad things, but the good things I feel like I'm almost looking at like that cake that's under the, you know, the, the, the glass and, mm. and the, mm-hmm. in the diner mm-hmm. that I can't taste the cake. I can look at it, but I can't, I can't taste it. And I could tell you 10 years later, having put a lot of work in, I can now have moments, and sometimes even long stretches, where I can feel it, and I think that's possible for you if you if you stick with therapy. And I feel it a
1: lot in little pieces. I mean, that's you know. I mean, I'm not saying anything that a million people have instead about stand up comedy, but that's there's that feeling when you're just in the flow you know where there's an energy that takes place in, you know i always relate it to it's like the end of the matrix when everything slows down yeah. and it's just you know and that, you know athletes re- re- refer to it as you know the game slows down the game is mm-hmm. really slow and it's like you're running back and you just see the holes develop and it's just this where you just feel like you're in tune with the universe like something's working through you Ugh. and you're
0: almost watching it
1: yeah and you just feel like you could do anything And, you know, those feelings when you have them on stage are just such a blessing, you know, and and, and they they don't come all the time. And sometimes you'll have, quote unquote, good sets where you never feel like that. And sometimes you'll have sets where you feel like that and you listen back to recording the next day is like there wasn't really that much laughter. But I'm not imagining that like there was (laughs) something cool going on there, you know, um, and sometimes I have it by myself when you come up with a joke or a sentence you know you're writing something and you're just like
0: God, i just i love that so much but you know where i think therapy is gonna gonna help because this is what happened with me was it had to get better in the stuff that had nothing to do with how i earned my money it had to do with how I treated other people and how I allowed myself to be treated and building my confidence about establishing boundaries and taking the pain that I used to be ashamed of and using it to connect to other people who had lived through similar circumstances, mostly in, in support groups. And that filled the part that could never be filled with Oh, I got a half hour special or mm-hmm. I'm on TV because that could never – it would excite it for a short period of time, but then it would go away and I'd say, Where this, where's the next one coming from? Mm-hmm. And I think I think you're headed in the right direction. You're just not feeling the benefits of it yet. And I would say just be patient and look for the growth in areas that have nothing to do with money, that have nothing to do with how other people view you, but have to do with how – comfortable you become with your past and how you feel in your skin right now regardless of money and i think it's going to come from having deep connections with people who feel you and see you and you being there for people because they know the pain that you've been through they know when they're telling you their story they know you feel them and you feel a sense of purpose. And that sense of purpose is what changed everything for me. It changed everything. And suddenly the comedy came from a different place and I took more risks and I cared less about the results. Mm. And now
1: I hope to be in a place like that. I just hearing you say that, I'm not totally convinced that that will mean that the world will enjoy what I do anymore, perhaps less. But you won't care because (laughs) something
0: else will be feeding your soul. Yeah, that is true. Because I think we're fucked if we get on that treadmill of how am I being perceived, that's how I'm going to feel about myself. That is the worst treadmill that you can be on. And it's the one we jump on. I was on it for 40 years, for 40 years of my life until I got sober, and I went, oh, there's this spiritual dimension to the world that's about connection to human beings and feeling a sense of purpose and being of service, and that opened everything up, and I went, oh, I'd been living a two-dimensional world because it was all about me, Yeah. and and, and you have not used your pain in the way it can benefit other people yet, and I think- if you got into a support group, Christian, you could make so many people, you could help so many people feel less alone. You could help. I don't know what that support group would be, but yeah, you're an either. articulate, that's, compassionate that's, guy.
1: That, that's the one of the things I also sort of fight with, and I think a lot of comedians fight with, is that I'm not a
0: joiner. I wasn't either, you know. but I had to know I was gonna die if I didn't join. <laughs> And maybe maybe things have to get more empty or painful for you to make some kind of change. Who knows? Maybe therapy will be enough. Who knows? And and it'll make that change. But I I, I guess I'm asking you to, and I'm talking to the listeners as well through you, mm -hmm. is keep an open mind that there may be a new way of living that you haven't tried yet that has nothing to do with money or, or recognition that will open it up. And then that thing begins to run on its own. Mm-hmm. And then you are almost in a life version of that zone you get to on stage where you feel like the universe is working through you. I know that
1: that, you know, is I, I keep saying stuff like this. I mean, I, I will say that having a dog has helped You know, I mean, my wife has always had a dog, you know, she's had a Chihuahua since before we met and now 13 years old, but you know, that's my wife's dog and between you and me, not necessarily the dog I would have chosen, (laughs) you know, she's a sweetheart. She's an old cranky old lady, but whatever. We got another dog two years ago and ostensibly this was to be my dog, even though honestly my wife because of my travel schedule she's with him more than I am but I mean I just maybe because the dogs are incapable of being scumbags do you know what I mean they're 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 simple they're easy to love you know so you can they're an empty vessel for you to just pour <laughs> this just uncomplicated love into you know and uh there's a, a consistency of you know for someone who's not terribly used to that, you know, that's an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's funny because I've been talking about all this stuff and like, I haven't really felt like teary about it, but literally the minute I start talking about my dog, it's just like this feeling happens because I just, I love being able to love my dog. You know, I don't feel like that towards anybody. I mean, I love my wife, She's wonderful, but even those emotions, as you know, are are complicated with rivalry and and uh they're complicated yeah you know there's there's you know bitterness and and competition or and, you know whatever there's marriage is hard, and your you dog's know? not gonna hurt you exactly my my dog doesn't make me feel bad because I didn't put the cap in the toilet, the, the toothpaste rather okay. cap on the toilet. What? Okay. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's, I'm so thankful to him, uh, that I can just love him. That's it. You know, it's just like, there's nothing terribly complicated about it. It's just like being able to like, I probably like, I probably tell this dog, like, I love him. Like, 50 times a day, you know,
0: it's nice. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a good dude. Can you see that you're a good dude? <laughs> People like me. Uh, <laughs> I know that's uncomfortable for, me, I, I for me to say to you on this. It's very, no, I,
1: I I'm a dude. I, I don't, I, we're all good dudes. We're all good dudes. We're all bad dudes. I am very patient with people because I expect very little of them. I, I don't I don't believe anybody's a particularly good or bad person. I think we're all just a mess. And so that allows me to I think be nicer to people. Uh I think if I am proud of one thing, is that I generally perceived to be uh, a nice person you know not sometimes to my detriment i think i think that i still even at 40 years old walk into a room and feel like oh the adults are here (laughs) you know what i mean uh and I'm sort of paraphrasing an old joke by uh, a friend of mine, Eric Kirchberger. Um, but I remember him saying that he's like, and I still walk into a room like, oh, there are adults here. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like that sometimes, just, and then I'll think to my, like, even just like, especially when I'm in LA because I don't live here, and I have this feeling of like. I'm like this new comic that I have to be, you know, Mm -hmm. please let me be on. Thank you for letting me be on your show. And I forget that people are just looking at a weird 40-year-old man with his shoulders into his ears. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) There's... I'm an adult. I should act like one. I should get the benefits if I'm going to be 40. If, I'm, yeah. if my back is going to hurt and my hip is going <laughs> to hurt, and you know uh, my sexual functions are going to be a, a, that of a 40 year old. Like if if you're going to be an adult, you should get the benefits of that. In use that leverage of walking into a room and make that 24-year-old feel uncomfortable instead of you. <laughs> Whereas I don't. I still find myself like just the doorman at at the improv last so night. I'm afraid like, they're not going to like uh, you. Yeah, they're, and they're going to the, tell I'm others. I'm on the lineup, I promise. <laughs> I'm not just here. Ugh, it's just what a loathsome prick. But, uh, but I do think that that has held me back in certain ways that I, you know, just... I went stopped by a a comedy show a couple nights ago just to kind of see if I knew anybody there. And the the woman who books the show was like, oh, I saw that you were in town. I was going to write you. And the truth is, I didn't write her for the same reason. That I didn't want to be awkward, Mm -hmm. you know? And I remember once there was a, a guy who has since become very important or more important than me in the industry. And he uh, was in New York once. He lived in New York for a while. And he I met him at shows. And we'd you know, have good banter at, at comedy clubs and stuff like that. And he called me a couple times to, to hang out. But he was even kind of a bigger deal than me then. And he would call me. And I so didn't want to feel like a star fucker. That I didn't call him back. And then the next time I saw him, he was like, I get it, we're not friends like that. I get it. No problem. It's like, ah, now you think that I don't mm-hmm. like you when the truth of the matter is that I just I didn't want to feel like the kind of person who was trying to network. That's why I'm so completely adrift in this generation, because I know I'm changing subject mm-hmm. or whatever, just briefly. I am a kid that came of age in the early nineties, you know, late eighties, early nineties, I am from the dignity generation and I am lost in the hustle generation. Like Mm -hmm. I, the words, when people use the word network as a verb and talk about like brands, like, am I living in a, like you would be a villain in a nineties movie. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like what is it? And I'm not saying they're wrong. It's just, the the sort of grunge for lack of a better word pose of like screw success you know it's all mm-hmm. about you know being pure that was as ridiculous as sort of millennial me 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 yeah. they're both silly but that i still am couch my life in those terms and those terms are not rewarded by anyone anymore <laughs> <laughs>
0: Before we, we wrap it up, I just wanted to uh, touch on your dad a little more, because I feel like we've skipped over um, him a little too much. And not, not to add any more tragedy to the no, sure. to the fire, but uh, he tried to take his, his life recently? <sighs> oh, yeah.
1: And that. Um, <laughs> well, he didn't actually try. He was trying to find a way to buy a gun and kind of caught himself. And admitted himself into a hospital. Um, My dad is clinically depressed. You know, he's always been. Um, And, you know, kind of that classic quiet desperation. You know, he told me that when when he would drink, he wasn't like the gregarious drunk. He would go to a bar and he would sit at the bar and he would drink in silence. And the bartenders would walk up to him. Are you okay, sir? Are you, are you all right? And, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. He, he never occurred to him, you know? And that's like, he'd go to the bathroom with his six pack of tall boys. And it was just, and that is, man, I am, whew, that is me in a nutshell, man. I, I, I just, I just go off to a place like, you know, uh, and it's hard for my wife. Like I know because she's a very tactile person. Um, she's just, she's in the world. And I'm not like I constantly feel like I am re- operating my body via remote control somewhere else, you know, mm-hmm. that, that I um, like in uh, Men in Black where they open up the skull and like little. my alien. favorite
0: moment in that movie, that little thing <laughs> yeah, yeah, inside yeah. the head. Yeah. That was like the greatest little character, yeah. that thing.
1: Yeah, but that's constantly how I feel or that like, you know, I am a Sims character and my actual controller is somewhere else. Um, and yeah, my dad is just, you know, in just many ways, you know, he, he's tries to be now, but you know, for the bulk of his life has kind of not been fully present in his life. And I remember, you know, it's funny cause I literally had this memory a week ago and it didn't occur to me to what it was that I remember once I walked into my dad's bedroom and he was quote unquote sick and wasn't going to work. And he got out of bed and he had shit his pants. He had shit his underwear. like, uh, And it was like not like all over everywhere. It was just this mm-hmm. ball of dump in his tidy whities that obviously was hours old at that point. Like, You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like, he was just kind of climbing out of bed. And then he, he, I remember seeing him go into the bathroom. Like drunk or hungover? Yeah. Now I realize that. Yeah. You know what I mean? That it was like, oh, he wasn't sick. He just... He had shit himself, you know, I mean, and, and it was just, I feel terrible saying this because he probably will hear this. Um, I can cut it out if you want me nah, to. Nah. It's, it's okay. You know okay. what? No, he won't. He doesn't have the technology. my <laughs> he, <laughs> he doesn't have the technical capability. Yeah. I'd have to really walk him through it uh, unless I emailed him and told him the steps. How, how long has he been sober for? A long time, you know, very long. Um, I was probably only about 10, when he got sober, mm-hmm. and so.
0: has how he relates to you and other people changed since he's been sober? Is he able to have conversations where there's a, a sense of yeah? I mean, he, emotion and honestly, and I, I hate to say it, you know, because my stepmother,
1: I knew her. I used to sleep over her house. You know, I used to go to her son. My, her son and I were friends, and I would sleep over her house. So I knew her as Mrs. McCracken. You know, and or Miss because she had, was divorced and i i I love her, I do um but she is also i very redundant, very mentally ill, she's aware of it, and she's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum where she pathologizes everything and she's constantly tweaking her medicines and you know and can't do certain things and you know in her own mind, and you know she loves being sick, loves it um And I love her, but that is tedious. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I know that it neuters my dad in the same way that my mother neutered my dad. Just having to be around that just crazy energy all the time. It numbs. It just numbs, you know. And I was very lucky that the period of his being single and sober... And even the first five years of being married, I don't, you know, I love my, I feel bad. I love my stepmother, but, uh, his best years happened to dovetail when I needed him the most. Like I basically, I moved in with him. I mean, I lived with him, uh, when I wasn't at school. Like, I would come home, I'd you know, during the summer I lived with him and and things like that. I had fully kind of moved out
0: of my mother's house at that point. So you were college age at that point? Yeah, like late high school and college. What did you feel like you got from him that you had always wanted when you were living with him? Consistency. Just
1: being able to count on things being the same way every day. Just, you know, knowing that... Just lack of drama, you know, and also it's just, you know, he was, my dad's got a great sense of humor. He's very funny. He, he laughs at jokes. Like he's a big laugher, which I am a huge fan of. It's like one of my favorite qualities in people when they laugh out loud. Um, you know, he's a, he's a good dude, you know, it's like for all of his problems, he's also a sex addict, but, uh, he, my wife said it, you know, just last week we were talking, you know, for all my dad's problems and he's made some mistakes and things over the years, but like he tries, he works on himself. Like he's trying to be a good person, you know? And that's at the end of the day, all you can really ask yeah. of someone, I mean, you know, there was a period of time, you know, when, when, when they got, my mother and father got divorced, like she accused him of molesting my brother, like in court, oh. she accused him of my mother, you know, filed a false rape charge at, w- at one point, you know, and in my, o- my younger brother being, being raised in that, you know, was, uh, believed a lot of that stuff and never the molestation thing, but it was a real challenge to my dad's sanity. You know, the whole situation oh was, and, and, but he, he, he held it together. You know, he really, uh. But just, just consistency, just being dependable in a time when I needed something to be dependable, you know? And yeah. so, you know, I'll always have a soft spot for that dude
0: just for that, you know? That's awesome. Does that make you feel emotional when you talk about that? Some. Yeah. You
1: know, I mean, I it it does...
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I it's it's hard because... You just got a look on your face that rem- reminded me of when you were talking about your dog. There was, <laughs> I could see, like, the emotions start to well up yeah, in you.
1: Yeah, so, a little bit. I mean, I... My dad's like a... Like an unsung hero. You know, he's like a guy who... Especially for a guy who's basically... And I accused him of this last time I saw him of playing out the string. You know, a guy who has... maybe not in the last year, I I feel like he's trying to wrestle again now, but the past few years, it's almost just felt like he was a a dead man walking, you know, like he just was not really present anymore. He, he owned a company for years that he lost, you know, and, and kind of just the circumstances of his life went downhill, you know, in terms of his prestige and his. He's I had to eat a lot of crow in the last fifteen years. Fifteen years of his life, you know, it was, it's humiliating, and you know that takes its toll, whatever. But to me, he's a you know a slightly uh, heroic figure, even though I don't really talk to him the way most kids talk to their parents like i don't you know i'm not like i get way more emotional talking about the theory of my dad Mm -hmm. than i do my actual dad you know it's like Mm -hmm. my actual dad no well fuck that guy (laughs) but you know (laughs) but you know it's it's nice to paint a romantic portrait of it (laughs) do you uh did you get a chance to write down any fears or loves? Oh, I I thought about them. I didn't mm. know that I meant to to That's okay. was meant to write them down. But I do have a, a few. Okay. Can, Let's do them. I'm okay. going gonna, gonna to read going I mean, a some. lot of these will probably be old hat now that we've talked for so long. That's Now that I've talked for 10 days. But <laughs> I'm
0: going to be reading uh,
1: okay. fears. Okay. I'm sorry. I should have written them down. That's all right.
0: Some people, uh, actually, probably the first five times I think I did them on this show I just I just winged, winged them. them. Okay. Yeah, but then I I started to run out so I had to start writing them down. So okay. yeah. No, no problem. We call it Miles Davising them when uh, <laughs> when we don't uh, prepare them. Uh I'm going to be reading the fears of uh a listener named Nate and he writes uh fears my father died of a brain tumor when I was 23 and I'm terrified that that will happen to me. I fear that what
1: I perceive to be negative thoughts are actually an accurate representation
0: of the truth. Oh, I definitely have that one. Uh, He writes, I'm afraid that I will never be a good teacher and that every class I teach is just digging me into a deeper hole of self-doubt. I am afraid that the die is cast. I'm afraid that I will never reach my students and that no one cares about the subject I love. (laughs) I fear that... I am just good enough to see that I'll never be great. I'm afraid that all the wonderful and fascinating history I have taught myself and learned about will be lost to dementia and old age. I fear that everything good has already happened. I'm afraid that I will never be caught up on lesson planning or grading. I fear that the things that matter to me aren't interesting to anyone else. You know, I always say that we we have uh, synchronicity on these uh, fears and oh, loves. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm sort of influenced just yeah. by hearing them as well. Well, I'm,
0: these are the ones that he has. The, his last two fears. I'm afraid that my, I'm afraid that I will have to care for my mom in old age as I did with my father. <laughs> uh,
1: I am afraid that. My mother will not
0: die. That's deep. And I have the exact same fear. I have the exact same fear. Um, And his last one. I'm afraid that my dad never knew how much I loved him before he died. I can say I'm afraid, but
1: I know for a fact that neither of my brothers knew. Because I didn't know. And I don't know still in many ways. But I'm afraid that
0: that marks me as a certain kind of person. I don't think there's a single person listening to you say that that thinks that you're not a person that has a lot of love inside you. I think we all see you as somebody whose trust has been deeply, deeply violated as a kid. And you had to learn to shut down to protect yourself to survive i think every single person listening to this episode is going to feel that way and feel tremendous empathy and compassion for you you come across christian and in, in as just the sweetest fucking god and the, <laughs> and the fact that you would consider yourself and i don't believe it's a it's a front i i i, I believe it's genuine and it, I I think it breaks our heart on a certain level that you can't like yourself as much as we like you. <laughs> I, and we see that same thing do in other ourselves. people like
1: themselves? I just <laughs> That's the part of it that rings like BS to me. It's like... I thought it was too until I felt it. I guess that's true. I mean, that's, that's just the hard thing that's hard yeah. for me to, you know, I am, you know, you you're you only get to experience your life, you yeah. know? Yep. And so it's really difficult for me to understand that, that
0: someone would be able to see meaning in things that I can't see meaning in, you know, I always say it's like trying to describe color to a blind person. That's until I began to feel that part of myself awakened that had just been dormant, I guess since birth or maybe since I was an innocent little kid. Um, I I've experienced that part of me coming alive and it's, it's the third dimension or fourth dimension to to life that I... It's why I do this podcast mm-hmm. is because I want people to know that there is more than the material stuff and what other people think of us. And it's hard to connect to that, and it's hard to get it to stay connected, but it starts with caring about other people and getting vulnerable around them. That's... And that was the most terrifying thing in the world to me and that's the absolute necessary thing that had to happen and i think starting with your therapist will be a a, a great place a great template to to learn to to trust it was for me when my therapist didn't judge me i was like oh maybe there are more of you out there in the world (laughs) (laughs) uh let's go to loves okay Um, I'm going to be reading Nate's Loves. He says, uh, I love learning something new about history or something additional that explains a topic I didn't understand. I love that one, too. I love a song that feels like you should have heard it before, but you haven't. Oh, that's a great one. Um, I love putting together a lesson about a topic that will grab my students. This guy sounds like a great teacher. He He really really does, man. Yeah. Yeah, he
1: reminds me of of a teacher, I, a guy who was very important to me in high school. And like the guy who handed me Cast Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and he's like, you need to read this book. And it was just like completely just nailed me. You know, I just actually yeah. read it again last week. You know, I hadn't read it since high school. And it was just kind of just a nostalgia trip. But it was like, oh, I still like this. And I still relate to this in a number of ways. But yeah, he does sound like a great teacher. Um, I love watching my dog run through the woods. he uh, my wife and I have a little house in the Catskills that we go up to and he'll run really far away. And then when, when, you know, he'll kind of be a dick and not come back. Cause really he just wants to run really fast and just jumping under branches and over, you know, piles and stuff. And just, just that look of
0: just unmitigated intensity. Yeah. I love that too. Um, I love, having a lazy sunday to clean my apartment and listen to podcasts <laughs> um i love a good bourbon <laughs> um i used to love to love a nice single malt scotch um i love fuzzy pj pants on a cold winter night yeah me too it's weird that I'm having a harder time with these than <laughs> 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 what do I love? Yeah. That's a good question. Well, you love music. There that must be, some, I mean, I, some could, music I could.
1: I could. I do a hundred on music. Are, yeah. Um, I love the song, uh, teenage wildlife by David Bowie. Um,
0: what is it about that song that you love?
1: It's funny. Cause I've, I've been a Bowie fan for forever. But that particular song, I've only really kind of gotten familiar with in the past six months. I mean, I, I had, it's on the album Scary Monsters, but it was it's kind of a deep cut. It's not, you know, a single or whatever. And so I never really spent any time with it. And in many ways, it, it describes what I have been feeling genera- generationally right now. It's like you're getting slightly older and you're kind of looking back at younger kids with a mix of pity and admiration, Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh my God, you're all so silly and ridiculous,
0: and I miss it so much. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, Nate says, I love waking up before the sunrise, drinking morning coffee, and anticipating what I can accomplish that day. Wow. I cannot relate to that on any level I have to say (laughs) not even a bit no I go to bed just before sunrise and I wake up thinking god damn it why can't I get the energy to accomplish anything oh 100% yeah yeah. Um, I love seeing a young comic kill
1: for the first time that's a great one I mean I it's such a bittersweet feeling Mm -hmm. because you immediately go back to the place in your head but at the same time, you know how meaningless it is at the same time in the grand scheme of things. See, the first
0: time you kill, you think like, Ugh. your cherries popped. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like hitting, done it. hitting a great golf shot. You, yeah. That's what brings you back. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nate's last one is, uh, I love spending time with my mom and brother. I can't be with my dad anymore, but it gives me a sense that he is still here and that he just stepped out of the room. <laughs> it's a sweet one. That is very sweet. It's very sweet.
1: I love thinking about this moment that my wife and I had, uh, it's maybe too long. Um, it's okay. We went to Peru a couple of years ago and we were at, in like an eco lodge in the middle of the Amazon. And we went on this like boat trip up the river, like three hours and camped, in the woods. It was just the two of us because it was the rainy season. So that nobody else was on the tours, just us and the guide. And we were in a tent and there was this torrential rainstorm, like, you know, hence the rainy season mm-hmm. in the rainforest. <laughs> uh, and it was the scariest night of my life. You know, we heard trees crashing around us and it was the most intense rain. And we were in a tiny little flimsy mm-hmm. tent. And when we woke up the next morning, all night we were just awake and not even saying anything to each other because there's just what is there to say, you know? Nobody would even know if <laughs> if we were dead, you know? <laughs> and when we woke up the next morning and then when we finally got back to the lodge, we just kind of collapsed in the bed and just started like laughing giddily, you know, just how crazy that was. And I, I love, it's, it's the, the, the image of my wife that makes me love her the most and, you know,
0: it's a fun thing to have shared. What a beautiful one to to end on. Christian, thank you so much. I feel so so lucky to um have been the person that you you shared this stuff with. Um I really appreciate you getting getting vulnerable Thanks. and sharing your life with me and the listeners. I'm just glad this isn't being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> thanks buddy. that uh that conversation really really touched me um i know i don't don't know uh christian that well but um i feel like i i do after that uh, after that conversation so many many thanks to him for being so vulnerable um before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support it financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, um, a monthly recurring donation starting as little as five bucks a month. And you set it up; you don't have to worry about it until you d- decide that you either want to cancel it, which hopefully you never will, or your credit card expires, um, and God bless those of you that are monthly uh, subscribers. It means the fucking world to me. Uh, You can support the show financially by shopping at Amazon through our search portal. It's on the right-hand side, uh, homepage about halfway down. I'm told that it doesn't show up if you have an ad blocker on and you're using um, Firefox. So, um, And you can support us also uh, non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us good rating, writing something nice if you feel... Like that would be truthful, and um, spreading the word through social media. Somebody I know is working. Uh, a listener is working on putting up a subreddit page um, for this uh, for this show. Thank you guys, all of you that pitch in. This the transcribers, Steve Greve, who uh, does the website. Um, so many people lend a hand to making this. All right, enough of my yakking. Let's get to some surveys. This is from the body shame survey filled out by uh, a guy uh, named Kenny who identifies as queer. He's in his 20s. He writes, "Um, I dislike my stomach because I can't seem to get it to be tight with defined abs. Uh, My nose because it's crooked and restricts my breathing. My penis because it's circumcised and I wish it was bigger. Um, You know, I think if we formed a penis club. of guys that wish their penises were bigger, we could probably out-lobby the AARP. This is from the Happy Moment survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Brendan. She is uh, straight, between 18 and 19. um, About her sexuality, she writes, romantically interested in men but sexually attracted to women. Uh, Share a happy moment or two. She writes, Glastonbury Festival 2011, sunset on the Saturday. I remember standing on the top of the hill with thousands of happy, carefree people around me as the sun shone, and they belted the words along to Coldplay. I'm hardly the biggest fan of Coldplay, but every one of those 100,000 people watching had a smile on their face and not a care in the world, and I remember feeling that way too. I felt carefree and innocent, and as if I'm in that moment, nothing else mattered. Stress of the future, my mental instability disappeared for those two hours or so, and that feeling of lightness is something so indescribable but so intense and wonderful that I started laughing right in the middle of the field. It's beautiful. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by... um, a woman who calls herself a mindless dribble. She's straightened in her 30s. About her alcoholism, she writes, guaranteed blackout and about three weeks of tremendous anxiety and explanations. I can relate to that. About her PTSD, she writes, there's a poison inside inside you and all you can do is scream to try and get it out because you know it will eventually go away and driving into a brick wall is not an option. Um, about her depersonalization, she writes, It's like I'm dead and my soul is above me, somewhere in the universe, flipping through chapters of my life and stopped on the page that happens to be the present moment, Moment, and I'm not really there. Thank you for that. Um, I just love when people are able to really succinctly articulate what they're experiencing and I, I felt like i was in your body as you described that i think we've all had moments where we feel out of our body but i think the thing that must be difficult for those with um, that disorder is that it happens all the time this is from the shouldn't feel this way survey and this is filled out again by mindless dribble um and what would you like people to say about your your funeral she writes i had a big heart and i always wanted everyone to be happy they would also say i love dogs How does writing that make you feel? It makes me laugh because it reminded me of an inside joke between my little sister and I about how much we love dogs. We love dishing our corniness. Uh, Shout out to my baby sister who will be home from Afghanistan the end of August. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? If I had a time machine, I would take myself as a child into the future and show myself that things will get better. That's beautiful. I love that. I think a lot of us wished Somebody would have done that with us. Um, I'm not supposed to feel blank, um, but I feel blank. She writes, I have so much love for my husband and want to be more sexual, but I've lost my sex drive and don't know how to get it back. He's so gentle and patient sometimes. I wish he would just grab a hold of me and be more intense. Then on the other hand, sometimes when he initiates it, I'm just too tired. How will he or I get the timing right? I wish we were at that stage when I couldn't keep my hands off him. I went my sex drive back, exclamation point. How does writing that make you feel? Mad. I need to make changes, but don't know how to be sexual without drinking. When I got sober, my sex drive went too. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling that? No, I've heard that's what happens sometimes to former pr- promiscuous alcoholics and those who have been sexually abused. It is extremely common. And uh, as somebody who was sexually fucked with, um, my sexuality had, has gone through periods of just completely disappearing um and shutting down and just not wanting to be touched um would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself hearing it out loud from someone else would be nice i know it's not abnormal maybe someone can tell me how to get my mojo back and be an amazing wife for my deserving husband um i don't know the first things that jump to my mind are um maybe counseling with the two of you together and um therapy or support group, to, support group to work through the abuse because you know, trying to deal with sexual abuse on your own is just the biggest boulder in the world trying to roll it uphill with a hand tied behind your back. This is from uh, Struggle in a Sentence Filled Out by a Woman Who Calls Herself Wraith. Uh, about her anxiety, she writes, I have severe social anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder. It feels like I'm always standing in a bright hot spotlight surrounded by an endless crowd of people who hate and are disgusted by me. Um, about her diabetes, she writes, I feel like, uh, type 1 diabetes, I feel like I am chained to a billion ton anvil. I have nothing but limits. Um, send in a big, a big hug your way, Wraith. Um, This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Horatio. He's straight. uh, He's in his 40s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts, that my wife will die and I'll be on my own with my kid. Not like I want everyone's sympathy, but I want to do it myself. Somehow I want her gone so I can live my life differently. Do I want her gone, dead, or do I want to be gone and free of the responsibility of being a parent, husband, and adult? I'm just not sure. Deepest, darkest secrets. I abused my brother and cousins, and cousin in a sexual way. We were very young, and I didn't understand it was wrong, and I didn't understand it was sex. No one ever talked to me about sex, but I found all my father's porno magazines and thought that's what a person did, and it looked like it would feel good. I didn't know it was abuse until years later and haven't been able to address it ever, and ever in, in capitals. Um. You know my first thought is talk to somebody don't try to don't try to carry that guilt and shame around um we can't let go of shame intellectually at least i i i've never been able to let go of shame um by just intellectualizing it you know the the things that i felt ashamed of even once i realized it wasn't my fault that it was something somebody did to me um it still took time and talking to tons of people For those layers of shame to begin to to go away so um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you probably blindfolding and tying up my wife having sex and finally forcing her to do the things she doesn't really want to do the other would be a three-way with my wife and another girl we did it once in college and i'd like to do it again would you ever consider telling a partner no i'm afraid i'll sound too porno uh do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings uh, like I should be ashamed of them because they are too porno. Um, I think you're being too hard on yourself. Um, I mean, that's what role play and fantasy is is for is to to be able to let those impulses out in, a, in an arena that that is healthy, where there is trust and you're not forcing anybody to do something they don't want to do. You know, it's interesting that that your fantasy is that you want to force her to do things she doesn't want to do. But I think the only way you could play that out would be to role play that and say, you know, would you do such and such and pretend like you don't want to do that? Or maybe she'd be willing to do things she doesn't want to do. Who knows? I just bored myself. (laughs) This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way uh, survey, and this was, uh, I wish I had paired this one up with Wraith, because this is um, her Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. Um, What would you like people to say at your funeral? I don't want a funeral. I hate being the center of attention. No one would come anyway. How does that make you feel, writing that? Lonely. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? She writes, time travel is impossible. Write as many of these as you feel like. I'm supposed to feel blank about blank, but I don't. I feel blank. I'm supposed to feel relieved about finally getting some help, but I don't. I feel hopeless. I'm supposed to feel grateful about being alive, but I don't. I feel cheated. How does that make you feel writing it out? Empty and humiliated. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes. Would knowing other people feel the same way? Make you feel better? Maybe. Wraith, I just want to send you a big, big hug. And remind you that it's a process and sometimes the most difficult part of getting help is the first hundred yards it 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 was for me it was painful and awkward and embarrassing and i cried a ton and i didn't judge what it was i was feeling um but it's a necessary part to to go through and you are not alone this is a survey that doesn't get filled out very often this is the vacation arguments survey um and this is filled out by, by claudia was a female. She's 33. She writes, We were driving west to Colorado from Toronto one summer, and by Illinois, Dad was on edge. We stood beside the cloud sculpture, a- a.k.a. The Bean, whilst my dad went to, quote, check the roof, which was code for having a smoke. As he went off, my mom was approached by a homeless man, asking politely if she could spare any change. Ever the compassionate woman, she reached into her fanny pack and pulled out a dollar bill. In the distance, you could hear our buffoon of a dad yelling, "'What the hell are you doing? Are you giving this man money?' "'Yes, I am,' she replied. "'He's just going to spend it on alcohol or drugs,' he said. It then became a standoff between my mom, the dollar bill, the homeless man, and my dad. She handed the dollar bill over to the homeless man, and my dad pried the bill out of his hands." The homeless man released the bill, shook his head, and mumbled to my mom, Lady, I hope you divorce this idiot and take him for everything he's got. We got back in the car, and no one spoke a single word for over two state lines. And remarkably, they are still together. Oh, that's awesome. And horrifying. Um, this is from the body shame uh, survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Jolly. She's in her 20s. And what do you like or dislike about your body? She writes, I remember once being asked what I loved most about my body at a women's retreat. As the 20 or so women stared back at me, waiting for my response, my hands began to tremble and anxiety-triggered sweat droplets began to form on my forehead. I don't know how long I sat there staring back at them. 10 seconds? A minute? I'm not sure. But absolutely nothing came to mind. I thought of how... uh, I thought my thighs were too wide. I thought about how my belly has never been flat. I thought about the monstrous stretch marks that highway down my arms, across my belly, and behind my kneecaps. I thought about how I have no butt. I thought about my lopsided breasts. All I could think about was how much I hate my body. And in that moment, I realized that I had never, not once in my life, looked myself in the mirror, and thought about what I liked about my body. My body had always been something I felt hatred and shame towards. But alas, with the 20 pairs of eyes staring back at me, I had to answer the question. I racked my brain for body parts others have complimented me on. I finally remembered and said, my eyelashes. I like how long and full my eyelashes are. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way uh, survey, and I just wanted to read this one thing, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Mouse. She's in her 20s, and um, she writes, uh, this sounds horrible and vain, but I don't want to be quote, like other people, I want to be better than other people. I want to be stronger. I know that this is an impossible standard to hold myself to, but I've always been a perfectionist. It's so ingrained into my personality that I don't know if I can ever get past the guilt of not being a paragon of human strength, will, and intelligence. And I wanted to read that mouse because not only did we share the same name uh, when I was in high school, but I related that to, to to that so deeply because that was what ran my life for so many years because I thought that would mean safety. And I think when we set out to distance ourselves from other people through our achievements, all we do is wind up making ourselves lonely. And we can't have it both ways. I don't think that we can be on a pedestal and not and not feel alone um that's my that's my two cents so i would encourage you to embrace things that make you feel one of many and then work through the fears that that brings up that you're not enough that you're not going to be okay in the future because those are myths that drive our fucking car around in crazy circles and finally i want to go out on mouse's happy moment um She writes, My grandmother is and always has been one of my favorite people in the world. She babysat me throughout my childhood while my parents were at work. One of my happiest memories from this time is when she would take me into her lap and just hold me close, my head resting against her chest. I would listen to the ticking sound of her replacement heart valve, clicking open and closed with every heartbeat. This constant, comforting sound would often lull me to sleep in her arms. I have rarely felt so safe and warm and loved as I did in those moments. That really, really touched me. So many things in this episode touched me, and um, I want to thank you guys for for listening and thank you for encouraging me to keep going with the longer episodes. Um, I'm glad you I'm glad you like them, and you reminded me that if somebody doesn't like them, they can turn them off. Um, so thanks for that, and um, I'm just so grateful to to have this community of people to to share with and to remind myself that I'm not alone. So if you're out there and you're struggling, big hug. Big hug out to you. You're not alone. You don't have to be. There is hope and there is help if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone. So, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in I know some, weird fucked up some weird ways. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some
1: weird ways.